So welcome back, everybody. So tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about um, compassion as right view and sort of look somewhat traditionally at what we mean by right view and, and reflect about how compassion and wisdom um, un- really can be understood together, not as sort of something apart. And remember, uh, wisdom or right view isn't something so much we do. So in the Noble Eightfold Path that the Buddha laid out, the first step, I mean, it's organized in different ways, but usually it's referred to as the first step is right view, right understanding. And uh, sometimes we think about this as, you know, the right view is not being caught in any view. And I thought one way to begin this discussion about how compassion and right view, how they relate, how they may be the same, is uh, remember some times when you were in the vicinity around some great suffering, yours or somebody else's, and, and uh, notice what that did to your view. Like maybe you just happened to be around somebody who had a terrible accident and uh, or around the death of a parent or family member or just around somebody who's in a bad breakup or uh, lost a job. And it's interesting how uh, if we're not completely uh, pulled in and then lost in the content of that pain, that suffering, then you might notice I have in my past um, a kind of awe and even in a funny way maybe a sense of sacredness about being in the vicinity of suffering. It kind of clears the air in a way of a lot of superficiality And we don't even realize how much our mind is weighed down or bogged down by different superficial ideas and 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 thoughts and hopes and dreams. And so when we're in the vicinity of something difficult or tragic, that stuff tends to evaporate very quickly. And there can be a kind of crystal clarity that is sort of not so easy for us to know what to do with. I remember in the mid-80s, I was spending a summer out at a place called Yogaville, an ashram out in Virginia, southern part of Virginia. I I was on staff there and doing some teaching. And and, uh, I think at that time, I was running a kids camp and at dinner that night, one of the swamis, one of the leaders of the place, said that somebody was missing. There's a little lake on the property. And she, she was last seen at the lake. Um, so a couple of us went down there. And this is a pregnant woman. And it's a real kind of swampy lake. 
So we were just holding hands, walking back and forth, and we then found her body. Because once we got down there, we saw, of course, that her stuff was still there on the side of the lake. So we had a strong suspicion she'd be in the lake. And then um, we didn't know how long she had been underwater, so people did the CPR and tried to revive her and uh, with no success. But I'm bringing it up just as... Uh, just what I remember distinctly is uh, that what I described, just how the air cleared, just even before, as we had a sense of what might have happened. And then, of course, when we stumbled upon the body, couldn't see through the water, and then pulled her out, and just sort of holding her. and um, It was just how uh, radically simple everything became in that, in that context. And I remember, like, I, re- I had enough wherewithal to both uh, realize the effect on the mind and, uh, and also to notice I was getting attached to it, like, like to the, the, the clarity and the energy. You know, it's like one of the things when the mind gets really simple, it's not dissipating energy. So the, there's just a lot of energy when the mind is just present and, and not doing much beyond just being present and responding directly moment by moment. So this is just a way to begin the conversation about right view and compassion. Because we might think, you know, compassion is some, is more about the response, but it's more that I think the response is coming out of that simple place. And... Uh, and the other thing is just the clarity. In order for compassion, real compassion, to be there and for us to act out of it, you know, we need that clarity. We need that our mind to be stripped away of fear, or even even maybe more slippery is the need to be doing something. Like uh, there, after initially, there's just three of us there and then and then obviously more people came uh, later and uh, you know debate like do we call the helicopter which they eventually did to, to bring her to Charlottesville um, but there was just a lot of confusion you know do we drive her do we call the helicopter is it too late do we call the morgue uh, that kind of thing and uh, and I just noticed, like when I when I was just in that clear place, I was totally ready to do anything, but I didn't need to do anything. And then I would notice sometimes I wouldn't be in that place. Like I needed to do something. You know, I needed to be the person who had something to do. And uh, it was like uncomfortable not having something to do. So I, I could just see how. You know, there were moments when I was really comfortable just being in that nimble state of awe and times when my mind just wasn't comfortable, maybe too much energy, feeling too exposed. Not exposed to the sadness, it was interesting, which maybe would be that way for other people, but just to the energy itself, the rawness itself. 
So this is a good uh, starting off point because when we think about right view, like traditionally when you think about right view, often the the first way that is the Buddha might describe right view is the beginning, is when the mind begins to understand our present moment in terms of cause and effect. So, you know, wrong view would mean we're in the, you know, doing our thing as a human being, but we're oblivious to cause and effect. So, my response, like as I see something or understand something going on around me, it's not in terms of this being a natural, conditional arising of whatever came before. But as we train our mind to be attentive, to be in the moment, it just becomes more obvious, this lawful unfolding, conditional unfolding. And then then it becomes a little bit more clear about how um, compassion can work. Because once we understand that things are moving conditionally, cause and effect, then we don't have to evaluate, like, is this person or am I deserving of love or compassion? Because on some level, everything is deserving and nothing is deserving. You know what I mean? It's like, because one of the things that when we start seeing things conditionally, like this moment is also conditional. It's just the natural arising of what's come before all of us having the experience we're having now. And we get this interesting when we can really be there in that experiencing, we get this seeming paradoxical feeling of, of equanimity, like just understanding how it can't be other than what it is right now. And then, not different than that, but maybe a different facet of that, a different angle on that same experience of being open, radically open, is a, a real tenderness. It's like, it's the absence of judgment that is the compassion. Like, not needing to judge or not needing to have an opinion about it. So I thought it would be good to explore this because it's not normally how we think about compassion. We talk about being moved. But it isn't so much the... uh, uh, It's not so much the movement, it's the absence of resistance to the movement. You know, we see something like in the Sutta study group this last month, some of you are in that group, uh, we read, we're reading um, The Great Disciples of the Buddha, a wonderful book, and we were on the chapter talking about the, some of the female disciples of the Buddha, including a woman named Patachara. And uh, she had this terrible day. She was pregnant and uh, decided to go give birth with her folks and they, she and her husband and her firstborn son or daughter, I forget, got caught in a big storm. So she asked her husband to go build a shelter because they couldn't travel anymore to get to her parents. 
So as he went off to get some um, branches, he got bit by a snake and died. And she didn't see this because he had moved away from where they were. So there she was. uh, And uh, I think at that point she gave birth. She gave birth. She's got the newborn baby, a couple-year-old or maybe four-year-old son, and a husband who hasn't returned. She does the best she can to get through the night. Next day, goes off looking for him, finds the husband dead, stiff as a board, and decides to continue on toward the parents. Comes across her river, which was swollen because of the big storm. Too weak to carry both kids across. Sets the older one down on one side, walks across with the newborn, starts back towards the older boy. Hawk sweeps, uh, swoops down and takes the newborn away. She freaks out in the middle of the stream. The older boy thinks she's calling for him. He comes out in the river. He gets swept away. You know, now she starts to go mad, uh, goes towards town. And uh, as she's approaching, she asks about her family. And uh, the person says, don't ask me about that family. And you can see where this is going. And sure enough, off in the distance, he points out the fire from the funeral pyre. And uh, her mother and father and her brother have been cremated because they died in the storm. A big, I guess a big tree had crashed down on their hut or their house. So then I think she goes mad and wanders about and runs, eventually ends up where the Buddha is. And the Buddha uh, helps her sort of regain her presence of mind and and go for, go on from there. She becomes a great saint. But it's just, uh, again, like how we uh, hear a story like that. And I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, a traditional Tibetan um, uh, reflection on compassion is to imagine a mother without her arms watching her son or daughter being swept away. So there, there really is a strong movement involved in compassion. And, you know, I certainly felt that in, in my sort of relatively um, not so intense compared to these stories situation. I didn't know this person. I mean, I had seen her around, but I, I didn't know her well. And... Uh, but even in that situation, there was a very strong movement of energy. And it's just a question of whether the heart, whether the mind is willing to be intimate with a very strong movement. Uh, you know, it's really, it's, we say energy, but it's just a movement of life. You know, it's not different than life. Is our heart, is our mind willing to let life move? So that's what we mean by opening. You know, compassion involves connecting, but what we're connecting with, especially with compassion, you know, and it's with these more sort of catastrophic events, we're, move, we're connecting with intense, powerful movements of heart energy, of life energy. And in a way, all of our, most of our conditioning is telling us to resist the movement, to hold on, to have some ground with what's moving. And then we learn, we practice 
letting things move, not resisting the pain, not resisting the confusion, not resisting anything. And the equanimity, you know, the spaciousness comes from the understanding of karma or the understanding of conditionality, the sort of ba- the, our entrance into wisdom or right view from the Buddhist perspective is to be able to drop or put aside self-view or self-view isn't just that we have a fixed sense of self, myself, but if we have a fixed sense of myself, then by definition we have a fixed sense of yourself and a fixed sense of everything. So then then we're resisting movement. So when we start seeing things conditionally, we're willing to drop a fixed sense. Like we can be here in this moment and have a fixed sense of me talking to you or this is who I am in this group context or this is what's going on in my life. So we can have a notion and then fix, the mind can fix on that notion or we can, it's not an idea. Conditionality isn't meant to be an idea. It's meant to be a realization. So it's like we're relaxing and we're realizing the condition the conditionality or the conditional nature of what we're experiencing here. So we're, we're actually feeling, knowing this as movement. It's conditionally moving. That's what this is. That's what experience always is. Life is always this movement right now, too. So the movement both cools the heart down. But in cooling the heart down, like we're letting go of, in a sense, the defenses of ideas, fixed notions about what's going on, who I am, what's happening. But it, so on the one hand, it's sort of cooling to be free of that. But on the other hand, uh, sort of powerful sensitivity arises too. Because now we're not dulling or defending the mind with concepts. So, in a way, we're, we're the heart, the mind, whatever, is completely undefended or exposed. I think I read this earlier in the course, but I'll just reread it. The first step in developing true compassion is being able to recognize, to open to, and to acknowledge that pain and sorrow exist. Everywhere, absolutely everywhere, in one way or another, beings are suffering. Some suffering is intense and terrible. Some is quiet and small. So what allows us to be close to that powerful movement is the seeing the emptiness of it. It seems contradictory but it's what allows that intimacy and then the responsiveness that comes out of the intimacy is understanding it conditionally instead of understanding it in terms of our concepts. She's my mother or 
she's my daughter or this is happening to me. You can think about this like maybe it's usually really getting these things usually better when the situation isn't so intense. So, you know, you're out camping and this summer it seems especially true. There are a lot of mosquitoes. So you had to work hard to get your trip organized and to get time off from work and to get to wherever you needed to get to. And there you are. And there are a lot of mosquitoes. And, uh, you know, if we're in our notions, our fixed notions about things, there can be a lot of rigidity and a lot of suffering. You know, this isn't okay. You know, I want to enjoy the sunset or I need to cook or uh, whatever our mind, you know, it's like God shouldn't have made mosquitoes. I mean, we start saying incredibly ridiculous things when we've been suffering. Things that we know aren't true, but it's like, it's such an obvious example of how we use concepts inefficiently to defend ourselves from pain. As if somehow blaming God or blaming nature or blaming the mosquito makes sense or is true in any kind of way. But we we do that sort of thing. And then, of course, things get, the heart, mind gets more and more bound up. And then if we have the wherewithal to soften or open, so, you know, universally, so we're both, in a sense, seeing ourselves, seeing ourselves in the sense of our conditioning, the way that the mind's been conditioned to not like mosquitoes. So we see how that's arising conditionally, that it's not me who's freaking out or me who's angry, but it's just the patterns. And in the same way, you know, as the mosquito responds to our agitation, you know, and all of the mosquitoes near near relatives also start to respond and swarm. And you're just seeing both the natural, unavoidable unfolding of causes and conditions. And, And so it's not that at this point we've stopped freaking out, but actually we're transmuting the freaking out from the cause for the mind, heart to get more and more bound up to a cause for the mind and heart to relax more and more, to open more and more. Because we're starting to use our direct experience to realize conditionality instead of to fix the mind in notions and concepts in terms of good and bad. And then, you know, then actually we can we can have compassion for ourselves and we can have compassion for the mosquitoes and we can have compassion for everything. Once once uh, that profound sensitivity or tenderness, you know, like I said earlier, the first thing we have to do is we have to let the movement be the movement. You know, the movement of the mosquitoes and the sound of the mosquito, that's movement, but also the movement of our rage and our, maybe our feeling of helplessness and our feeling of wanting to kill, you know. I mean, just really wanting to kill, wanting to eliminate them. And it doesn't even matter that there are more. 
that there's some satisfaction in just killing them even though we know it's not going to make much of a dent. So that kind of rage, that sort of destructiveness, it needs to do what everything needs to do. It just needs to move. And we don't have to grab it with judgment or grab it by being identified with it, being the killer, but just to start to let the life energy move. And then we get some relief there, but we also, uh, the heart also expresses a profound tenderness. Like the moment moves us. And this is the interesting thing about compassion, being close to suffering in a skillful sense, is that there's a really beautiful quality to it. The beautiful quality is the free movement. However freely things are moving, that's the joy. But it feels, it can feel, of course, like something's being torn asunder. And there is, because the old habit, which is not to let things move, you know, but to get identified, to get fixed, that's being, in a sense, torn apart because it's being triggered, but the mind knows better than to, to sort of pick it up, to take it up, to act it out. So it's getting broken apart. Things are getting loosened up. So this is why it can really hurt sometimes, you know, we say, hurt so good. Uh, when we're compassionate. And as I described with that story, you know, from my own life, you know, how I I noticed uh, like wanting to own that wave of energy, wanting to ride it in a sense, like to be the person who's helpful. That was sort of the, you know, how I describe it, to be the, the person... It was more, you know, it's, it's more stinky than that. It's not so much being the person who's helpful, but it's like uh, getting identified with being cool, you know, not being uh, worked up, and being identified with being cool and clear-headed and uh, productive, you know. And, and then really seeing, like, how unpleasant that was. And how uh, how challenging it was to relax and to be empty, to just feel everything that was moving, including, you know, it's like part of what's moving is that old conditioning getting triggered and not finding any ground to express itself. So it sort of falls. It like it comes and it falls, like the impulse to do, and but it's. Because there's wisdom present, you know, it's not getting acted out. So I find it really messy and intense to do this practice. One of the things that teachers mention that sounds right to me in this experience where we have the wherewithal to feel that things want to move, to let things move, to see things conditionally to be somewhat grounded in that understanding of conditionality and the emptiness that that implies and to be willing to be that sensitive, to feel the movement, is this, uh, you know, another way to talk about equanimity is in terms of equal ground. 
So it, uh, normally the, one of the ways we manage suffering, our own even, but especially with others, is creating some distance. Well, it's too bad that's happening to you. And, and we, you know, because we're not seeing things conditionally, we have a sense that, you know, this is the great misunderstanding about karma. People think that karma means that somebody deserves what's happening to them. But that's not the correct understanding of karma. Karma is the teaching of conditionality, of cause and effect. So what it means is, like, if something happens, and let's say it makes sense that you were part of the causes for that happening, or let's say it was completely out of your hands, like an asteroid just fell on you, but not because of anything you did, So to say that somebody's at fault misunderstands karma because karma is not saying somebody's at fault. It's saying that things are unfolding lawfully. That it wasn't some kind of mistake that the asteroid fell here or it wasn't some kind of mistake that I said that really stupid thing the other day and now it's coming back to haunt me. Like given all of the causes and conditions, it couldn't have been different. There was no way for me not to have said what I said. No way for that asteroid not to fall here now, given all causes and conditions. That's what karma teaches. So it's not about blaming. So when we say uh, opening to the understanding of karma, it's really understanding the emptiness because whatever it is now, whatever's happening to me or to you, is just the natural unfolding of causes and conditions. And even if I decide to take it very personally, what you're doing, what you're saying, what I did, that is also the natural, unavoidable unfolding of causes and conditions. And this is what moves the heart. It's like uh, this is what both frees the heart and moves the heart, allows for an actual expression of love or compassion, is really being in experience in this way. One of the things we notice then um, when we're in those kinds of moments, it's like, uh, again, it's, it's not that thought is wrong but we just notice that some thoughts are helpful in the sense of maintaining that understanding and some thoughts aren't helpful. And so in Buddhism, in the Buddhist teaching, we talk about the three wholesome and the three unwholesome roots. So thoughts that are arising out of greediness or fear or aversion or deludedness, not being connected, those thoughts don't help maintain that realization of conditionality and the ability, the capacity to be right in the movement of life, right in the movement of the moment. The thoughts of kindness, you know, non-aversion and thoughts of generosity and letting go, which is non-greed and thoughts of non-delusion or thoughts coming out of non-delusion, clarity, they support being right in the middle, intimate and alive. 
So we can construct, you know, with thought, we construct two very different worlds. If our thinking is coming out of non-greed, non-delusion and non-aversion, we stay right in the middle. So this is like Dharma. You know, one of the definitions of Dhamma or Dharma are the teachings of the Buddha. So useful teachings are teachings that basically are inviting us to stay in the moment. You know that one of those very provocative stories, I think from the time of the Buddha, but certainly from the Buddhist tradition long ago, was uh, some monks were practicing. Generally what happens is they, they might get together at different times, like to eat their meal, but then usually their hut or where they're camping, it, you know, a couple hundred meters apart so that they have some privacy and seclusion. Anyway, uh, one of the monks in this story gets caught by a tiger and is starting to be mauled and eaten by the tiger. And of course, the other monks around hear this and run, but it's too late to get the, to do anything about it. So they stand close, but not too close, and they encourage the monk to stay present. And maybe, maybe in part encouraging themselves to stay right there in the experience. And so it's like this is the kind of language we can tell ourselves. Like in some of you know, I, I spend most Saturday nights helping my dad with my mom. And uh, initially, you know, I took some time, but initially some of some of the work is, is troubling, was troubling. You know, just, uh, just how removed my mom is most of the time now. She hasn't really spoken much in a couple of years or at all, actually, in a couple of years. And um, she's sort of end-stage Alzheimer's, but she has, she has a really healthy body, but her mind has completely um, retreated, I guess. It's not, not really connecting. And uh, so some of the things were disturbing, and I noticed, like, I had to encourage myself, you know, just that it's okay. It's okay to, like, stay awake, and it's okay to feel disturbed. You know, and basically, that everything's okay. It's okay that she's the way that she is. It's okay that I'm the way that I am. And it was really helpful, you know, basically to have words coming out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. So it's not that, you know, the way I was talking about compassion, it might seem like such a, you know... Uh, an unusual experience devoid of anything that we know, but we can, in like in all the little ways, we can just encourage ourselves in, in that direction of not being fixed, not being confused by our ideas or not being confused by our conditioning. And just to keep letting things move, it's almost like we're just encouraging a ventilation a movement, like whatever's going on, it's okay. No matter how despicable my reactivity might be, you know, no matter what thoughts I might have, like even the thought, uh, maybe it would be better if she just died, you know, something like that, that, you know, you're not supposed to think that thought about your mother or something like that. But like, well, when that thought arises in my mind, I understand it's a conditional arising. It's like, it's not a mistake, that thought. 
and it's and, and to have a thought that somehow feels like it has to stop something, which doesn't work anyway, is just adding suffering. It's just insane. It really is. So we want to, you know, experiment with how you can, um, how we can use language, language, the teachings to encourage us in all the little and big moments of our lives, like how to show up more completely. It's interesting, like when we're around somebody who's losing it, like something bad is going on in their life or something bad happened to them. And instead of relating to their pain with compassion or relating to whoever is involved in that problem with compassion, they're totally reactive, you know, blinded by the pain, basically. So maybe just bring to mind a situation where you were around somebody who was blinded by their pain. You know, just couldn't be with it. Even even like a little child this happens with, right? A little child gets upset, their toy breaks, or they've got to go to bed. <clears throat> and then they get all whipped up in a fury. And they're blinded now by their pain. And it's what's interesting is how easy it is for us to get angry and to justify it at their blindness. Don't they see how they're causing their own pain. And, and just to get a sense of how contagious it is for the mind to fix on notions. It doesn't have to be this way. You know, if you'd only look, if you'd only let go. And uh, so this is like a really great place, I think, for um, insight is to notice when we're around suffering, when we get on that high horse, you know, and we feel so clear, so justified in being strong about like what this person can do to handle their pain better. But we can't handle being around their pain. That's exactly what they're doing. They can't handle being around their pain and we can't handle being around our pain of seeing them in pain. And it's like a wildfire, you know, just sort of spreading. Like after 9-11, I was out of the country for several months. So I didn't, I didn't get the thick of it like most of you who were here. And I was sort of, I was on retreat um, overseas, so I didn't see TV until mid-December. And, uh, um, but just like how that inability to open to what was going on, like to, to confusion or maybe rage or, you know, whatever, whatever you felt, rage against those people who were rageful. Um, but just our inability for somebody, you know, in that chain of reactivity, the inability for enough people to just feel what they were feeling and to see what they were seeing and to let everything move, like to make that okay. okay. Not that it's okay on sort of on the relative sense, but okay that it's already moving. You know, it's already being seen. It's already moving in my heart. It's how it is. It's just the natural 
lawful unfolding of causes and conditions. This is how we put out wildfires, you know, that just keep spreading, go all the way around the globe and then reignite again in our own heart. You know, it's just how that is. So like uh, we're all worked up about something and then we get our partner worked up and, and then an hour later we've sort of cooled down but our partner still has got it, you know, and they reignite us and, you know, and then later that next day we're cooled down again but our friend, you know, who we... And it's like we keep uh, these things alive, these patterns of reactivity, fire. We're going to come back to this topic of... Um, compassion and wisdom next week. And then week five, we'll talk more about um, compassion and action. In a way, action is the, you know, the most beautiful part of compassion, but it's a natural fruit. So we're just going to use one of our five nights to, to talk about that compassionate action. But there's 15 minutes left. It'd be nice to hear from some people, your own experiences, um, questions you might have about what I brought up. What comes to mind? Yeah, Julian. In a way, when these things happen suddenly, it gives me faith that I can look at my actions and often they're wholesome. You know, they happen suddenly. So someone told you, you know, the day before you're going to find a body in the lake. Yeah, this anxiety, but it's just there. But there's also an essence of, you know, I think the trust in the Dharma that we hold other people and they hold us, and, and it's mutual. Went to a celebration recently, and um, people I hadn't seen in 20 years, and I sat with the family that was celebrating. And they ended up telling me these, about how much pain my brother had caused them for many years. And I didn't know this. I mean, I knew vaguely he's estranged for 20-some-odd years. But, and, you know, it's a celebration. There's other people at the table. And they kind of began going into details about crimes he committed against them. And I was really happy. And... I knew there was nothing I could say, and, and that was totally fine. And I just sat and looked at him and got teary. And, you know, I guess that they felt I was the only person who could hold it for them. Yeah. And that's fine. Um, you know, I sent him an email the next day thanking them for sharing their sadness. And You know, and then I came here and I talked to a couple of people. So it can kind of go around in a you know, sweet way, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through yeah. all the muck and mire, and, you know? Yeah. Yeah, hearing a story like that, I think it is contagious. It's a different kind of wildfire, you know? Like how healing it is when, for, for all the different causes, conditions, the pain can come on the surface without it being perpetuated, you know, and maybe to some degree it got loose, it unwinded, 
they experience some healing, you experience some healing. And uh, it's like a, a kind of sacredness, like even you sharing it, it's like there's a way for us, even though we hardly know the story at all, there's, it's, uh, yeah, there's just a way of connecting. And, and, and basically it, it encourages an unwinding, like I feel inspired, we all do in some way right now, like uh, the power of just showing up and like letting people uh, reveal their pain and not feeling like we have to do anything about it. You know, it's just being that quiet presence and letting the heart be touched. Thanks, Julian, for sharing that. Yeah, Mimi. Yeah, like a, a natural radiation of the heart, you know, yeah. comes to mind.
And that's, that can be a place we can return to. You know, like any place where there feels like some rigidity or something being held, you know, when it's appropriate to go knocking on that door, you know, and just... And like uh, even, you can even use some of the formal aspects of the practice, like breathing in, I care about this rigidity or I care about how the heart is held in this way around this issue. I mean, you wouldn't use all those words, but so you're breathing in and you're touching, you're opening, and you're exhaling, not to make it go away, but just that you care about it, like that it will go away when it's ready to go away. It will open up when it's ready to open up, whatever that is. And in a way, we're just saying, it's like, you know, Julian having that opportunity just to be with these people you know, it's amazing coming together of causes and conditions that they were sitting at that table and they felt ready and Julian was able to just be there and receive it. And we can have that same stuff with our the unfinished business in our life too or whatever we're still closed to or unable to open to. Thanks. Yeah, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> How they were dealing with it, you know, and, and my inability to accept the fact that these parents are going to keep these kids. And they've already been hurt so much. Yeah. There's just so many layers of unacceptance. And it was quite a. It, 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 I'll never forget it. It changed me forever to, to really watch. You just don't know. You know, it's just the, the layers of unacceptance. 
And the key is we, like I said before, about being on an equal playing field. We have to see, like you suggested, Rebecca, that our rejecting those people who were just responding by judging that, oh, I get what they're doing because I'm doing it, you know, and that's how we change. That's how we change the whole dynamic a little bit. We do our part in that moment. And that's how you can have compassion for those people because yeah. Thanks, Rebecca. A couple of minutes, maybe time for one more sharing. If anybody else has something they'd like to share with the group, yeah. In a way, I don't know if this is true for UK, but in a way, it's easier to show up when we don't have money, you know? Because I, because when I do have money, it's always a question, should I, and then how much? And, uh, and then, I, then I'm totally not able, you know, I'm, yeah, to be present, because I'm figuring out, you know, because I'm afraid of being taken advantage of, you know, or on some level. Yeah, it's just interesting. That's why... I find it useful to have a plan so I can show up. I, I think I've mentioned to people, like now, Wynn and I carry little power bars in our car to give to people who you know, are asking for money just so I have a plan and I can actually practice showing up you know, and offer something. And uh, I'm not saying it's the right way, but it was better than what I was doing, which was being uncomfortable and not liking it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and totally not connecting with the person at all. Um, so. so let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate being here. Appreciate these wonderful teachings coming from the women and men who have done their practice and we get to be the recipients. And so we can happily join <clears throat> the stream of causes and conditions leading to greater peace and freedom from suffering in the world. So may this be so. 
And one thing uh, for our small groups next week, uh, I mean, anything could be interesting to talk about, but one thing is just to notice how different states seem to masquerade as compassion, but through investigation, you're just starting to see, I mean, not in a negative way, but just the impurities or how it's not quite compassion. You know, it's something masquerading as compassion. That might be particularly interesting for our small groups next week. So let's see, announcements. Anybody have announcements for the community? Roger Jackson will be here a week from this Saturday, the 20th, talking about Metta. He's a professor down at Carleton, quite uh, respected uh, Buddhist scholar. Shelley? Or the inner teen? Yeah, Matt, and then me. Uh, there's still a few things to be made for the retreat for cooking, so if you've been thinking about doing that, um, still opportunities to uh, contribute food. Go to Common Ground, the website, residential retreats, food donations. Okay. Um, there's a group uh, of people taking uh, the Dharma to the prisons. Uh, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.